1: It's Tuesday, July 21, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm joined shortly by our managing editor, Ed Harrison from Washington, D.C. But first, Nick Correa with the day's stories.
2: Thanks, Ash. Early on Tuesday morning, EU leaders settled on a 750 billion euro coronavirus recovery package, which allows for the European Commission to undertake borrowing on capital markets for the first time. French President Emmanuel Macron hailed this moment as a historic day for Europe, as the bloc's economic union becomes more tightly interwoven. After four days of intense negotiations, the bloc's longest summit in 20 years, German Chancellor Angela Merkel and French President Macron, the negotiations driving duo, scaled back grants being offered to 390 billion euros with the remaining 360 billion as loans. Initially, Brussels had proposed 500 billion euros in the form of grants. EU leaders also agreed on a next seven-year budget worth 1.074 trillion euros. Altogether, it makes the spending package worth 1.8 trillion euros, or 2.06 trillion US dollars. Even though the terms of the recovery package are not what Brussels originally hoped for, European leaders appear to be very satisfied with the outcome, with some even referring to the bloc's Hamiltonian moment. This is a good deal, this is a strong deal, and most importantly, This is the right deal for Europe right now. I would like to thank all the leaders and the President of the Commission and their teams for their hard work. We showed collective responsibility and solidarity. And we show also our belief in our common future. And this agreement sends a concrete signal that Europe is a force for action.
0: Europa hat immer noch den Mut und die Fantasie, groß zu denken. Und so erschöpft, erschöpft wir jetzt auch alle sind hier. Wir sind uns bewusst, dass dies ein historischer Moment in Europa ist. Wir befinden uns in einer der schwersten Wirtschafts- und Gesundheitskrisen. Und dennoch gelingt es Europa nach intensiven Ringen auf diese beispiellose Krise kraftvoll to
2: a major source of pushback came from the leaders of more fiscally conservative states, Austria, Denmark, the Netherlands and Sweden, who are dubbed as the Frugal Four, and who were joined by Finland in the Brussels negotiations. In an effort to break a deadlock that emerged because of their objections, European Council President Charles Michel hammered out an increase in the rebates these countries would receive on their contributions to the bloc's budget. According to the Financial Times, these rebates, which are discounts applied to the budget contributions, are quote, a legacy of the UK's membership of the EU after then Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher in 1984 won the prize payback mechanism, end quote. After Brexit, many countries, such as France, had pushed to abolish rebates. However, increases to rebates was a powerful bargaining chip to win the fiscally conservative block over. The EU deal will still need to be approved by the parliaments of the member states, which could create more obstacles. But with this package, more highly indebted countries in the bloc, such as Italy and Spain, which experienced major blows from the pandemic, won't need to fear higher government spending to support their economies. As these countries will continue to face the fallout from tourism and other travel-related industries grinding to a halt, this type of support is needed more than ever to keep these member states afloat. And with that, I'll send it back over to Ash and Ed.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
1: Thanks, Nick. Welcome back, Ed. Good to talk to you, Ash. Ed, let's jump right in. I'm looking at three stories today Europe, Europe, and Europe. How about you?
3: yeah it's uh, you were saying the stories of the day at the top and really the, there is only one story. When I woke up, they were talking about the futures being up and uh, in Europe in particular and uh, in in the United States as well. The markets reacted very positively to the news. Uh, markets sort of sold off a little bit after that, but in general, I think people are very positive about this outcome. Yeah, let's walk through this, Ed, because there are a lot of facts and figures. It's a little bit slippery, especially for
1: Americans. Let me just kick off right here with some of the key data points. So effectively, the European Union has agreed to 750 billion euro funding package for post-pandemic relief, 390 Uh, are from a grant program that's 110 billion euro less than the proposed 500 billion euro. Uh, That's the recovery fund that you'll hear talking about. Leaders also agreed to approximately 1 trillion, 1.07 trillion euro uh, for a seven-year budget. All in, Wall Street Journal is reporting a $2 trillion in US dollar spending agreement.
3: Yes. So the big uh, difference, or the, uh, you know, there are two ways that you could look at it, is the difference between the 500 and the 390, or you could look at it as the difference between zero and 390. Because when you say grants, uh, that was the sticking issue for the Frugal 4 plus Finland. Finland joined uh, the Frugal 4 in negotiations in Brussels. Uh, they were aligned in saying that, you know, we really don't want a A transfer union. We're not looking to have debt mutualization, and so this is, you know, sort of debt mutualization to the back door is what they're saying. They'd rather have no grants whatsoever. Uh, The fact that you have 390, uh, along with the rebates that these countries, many of them, got, that's good for them. Uh, You know, so the fact that they had some sort of agreement, I think that people are very positive about that because this was actually the longest summit that we've had. In uh, EU history is my understanding. It's at least the longest the one that we've had in recent memory.
1: Yeah and the first in-person summit since uh, COVID, basically since February. The Frugal Four that Finland has joined, uh, for those who aren't following this as closely as you are, at Austria, Denmark, the Netherlands, and Sweden. Um, one point important to make at the outset, this still needs to be approved by the individual parliaments of the European nations. That's the 27 members of the European Union. So it's not quite a done deal yet.
3: No, and you know there have been treaties that have gone through And they were not, and they were blocked by individual countries. I think Denmark had uh, some a block at one point. Ireland blocked another treaty. So it's definitely not a done deal by any stretch of the imagination. But I, it's more likely to be done in terms of the optics. What I think is very interesting is is uh, the Franco-German alliance because the way that I would look at this is sort of a northern-southern split, uh, not. Necessarily Eastern, uh, Western split, but when you think of uh, Western Europe, the Northern Western European countries versus the Southern uh, Western European countries. And not as much Greece in this particular case because they went through the COVID crisis relatively well, but we could consider them a part of the South as well. And so the Southern countries were much more in favor of the grants, whereas the Northern countries were not. Interestingly, at some point in time, France joined the South. So they they pick sides and they said, we want the grants with, you know, we were hard hit as well. Uh, so we want this to happen. And at some point in time thereafter, Angela Merkel, who's the German chancellor, she said, okay, I will acquiesce to that. Uh, you know, I want, I want this to happen. And I want it to happen through a German, uh, French, deal. I want us to put up a big face to show that the EU is back in business. The The Franco-German alliance is back in business. And so that's how this deal went through. So, so <clears throat> sorry, the Frugal Four plus Finland, uh, they're the ones who were balking, whereas normally in the past when you saw, for instance, in the Greek debt crisis, it was the Germans who were leading the way. They were the ones who were pounding the table. So I thought that that was interesting just from an optical perspective as to where the shifts are in terms of the political center for for Europe right now? Yeah, crucial point. The
1: Franco-German alliance is really the backbone in many ways uh, of the EU, as you point out. Uh, French President Macron had been pushing very hard uh, to do this deal. Uh, German Chancellor Merkel had been a little bit more uh, reserved, I guess it 's fair to say, but that alliance seems to be what has pushed this over the line let 's take a a big picture look at some of the things that's going on here. I think it 's important to put some of these numbers into context because if you 're just breezing through, uh, they look like just very large numbers but let 's get an understanding of exactly where we stand. So multiple estimates have the EU economy shrinking around 9 percentage points in 2020. That's not an annualized quarterly number. That's for the year. That's versus positive 2.3 percentage points of growth in 2019. So that means nearly an 11.5 percentage point swing from trend prior year. And when you look at the numbers, just looking at that dismal quarterly print. It is obviously something that is an existential issue for the European Union.
3: It definitely is. And, you know, uh, just to broaden it out a little bit further, I have some quotes from when uh, the euro was formed. And when I say formed, I mean when they thought of the euro back in 1992 and the Maastricht Treaty. Um, It was interesting, a, a British economist by the name of Wynne Godley. Uh, was talking about this in the um, LRB, which is uh, the London Re- Review of Books. That's what it's called. Uh, so now, Win Godley, what he said is, is that at the time in 1992, European countries are at present locked into a ve- severe recession. And th- talking about this recession, Godley said. If there were an economic and monetary union in which the power to act independently had actually been abolished, coordinated reflation of the kind which is so urgently needed now uh, could only be undertaken by a federal European government. Without such an institution, EMU would prevent effective action by individual countries and put nothing into its place. So that's exactly why we're doing what we're doing right now with regard to, to this disbursement but interestingly, he went on later in the piece to say, and I think this is the important part if a country or region has no power to devalue, and if it's not the beneficiary of a system of fiscal equalization, then there is nothing to stop it suffering a process of cumulative and terminal decline, leading in the end to immigration as the only alternative to poverty and starvation. I sympathize with the position of those like Margaret Thatcher, who faced with the loss of sovereignty, wish to get off the EMU train altogether. I also sympathize with those who seek integration under the jurisdiction of some kind of federal constitution with a federal budget very much like uh, that of the community budget. Uh, What I find totally baffling is the position of those who are aiming for economic and monetary union without the creation of new political institutions apart from a new central bank and uh, who raise their hands in horror at the words federal or federalism. This is the position currently adopted by the government and by most of those who take part in the public discussion. So I think this is a great quote because it was very prescient in terms of when you think about the Greek crisis and the whole European sovereign debt crisis. It also is prescient in terms of this this particular crisis. You know, basically Merkel and and Macron are taking on board this whole concept that you need a coordinated reflation via a federal uh, uh, European government. But at the end of the day. I think what when Godley was getting at is either you go full federal or you go home. And this is a halfway house in between. Uh, maybe it's an incremental step towards full federal, but I'm very skeptical that you'll ever get there to the full debt mutualization. The frugal four plus Finland, they're telling you that uh, it will be a hard slog to get to that level. And so the EU will have a permanent sense of low growth.
1: Yeah, it really is a great quote for for a number of reasons. 1992, you talk about the halfway house, I think about the ERM, the rates mechanism that uh, resulted effectively in George Soros and the quantum fund breaking the pound, so-called selling short the pound uh, because of the problem that you mentioned, which is the fact you can't really be in this weird halfway house. And that calls right back to the issue that's on the table right now, the collective issuance of mutualized debt at scale. And that seems to be something that we're trying or to back our way into, we being the EU. But there are all of these issues uh, that are very complicated. This is not the most transparent uh, process, especially when the numbers just come out. But when you look at rebates, rebates are a key word that we keep hearing about this, that from the frugal four, what was needed to make this deal happen? The idea that countries are getting rebates, funds paid back to them, it is a question of whether or not we've truly gotten to debt mutualization. and I'm very curious to hear your thoughts about that.
3: Yeah, I think that uh, it's it, the slippery slope started with Margaret Thatcher. interestingly enough, uh, you know now that the uh, the Brits are out of the EU, but the reality is is that the larger countries, the wealthier, larger countries are the ones that are paying, Excessive, uh, you know, more than their share into the pot, so to speak, and therefore they want rebates back for certain things. And the uh, four countries or the five countries, uh, in to varying degrees, got that. Um, Germany gets that; they're a net payer, uh, and so it, it, it's just it's not a, a good system. In the sense that you know, when you pay taxes, uh, it, it, everyone who's paying taxes into the federal coffers from New York, they're not asking for a rebate because Alabama is not, you know, is not, is getting too much, or you know, California, et cetera. Even as acrimonious as things might be in terms of a red versus blue in the United States. true federalism exists in the United States and has for many years. There's not that same sense of we're all in this together in Europe, and I doubt that we'll get there anytime soon. So there are very big national identities within the European Union. And so this whole concept that we have this Hamilton moment, uh, where we're now going federal, just it doesn't wash with me. It's it's not what's going to happen. And when we think about it, just from a, a a markets perspective and an economic perspective, what it basically means is you're going to have slower growth. That is, it, whenever you have recessions like this, uh, countries that need more, they're not going to be able to get more. They're not going to be able to do more fiscally. And they're certainly going to have to rely on monetary policy to do all of the uh, the heavy lifting. But that means more debt in places like Italy. And eventually, that's going to lead to a debt crisis. And that could lead to an existential crisis for the EU. And in the meantime, that's going to be slower growth. And it's it's hard to say what it's going to mean for markets. But it it certainly means a lot of money printing by the central bank. And to the degree that you think that's bullish for asset prices, interestingly enough, as Tyler Neville is going to tell me in in two days when he's on this show, it may be that secular stagnation is actually bullish uh, for equities. Well, you've know, hit on a lot there, and and much of that is just spot
1: on. I would say this was a debate, as you pointed out uh, back to Margaret Thatcher, it was an old debate. Then this this harkens back seventy years to the end of World War II, to the Treaty of Paris, the Treaty of Rome in the nineteen fifties, and even before that, to the European Coal and Steel Communities uh, that were established to try and regulate trade and to establish a true European market. You know, European Council President Charles Michel uh, was quoted after this deal was reached as saying, "We did it. Europe is united." You know, that's a philosophical statement as much as a political one. And I'm a little bit skeptical myself that we have a United States of Europe in the same way that we do have a federated United States. In fact, I'll put myself out on a limb here and say, We just don't. That's just not the case. These are distinct countries with distinct languages, distinct cultures. Of course, there is a broader European identity. There is a broader cultural identity. But there are definitely ways uh, in which interests, fundamental, raw, pocketbook interests do not overlap exactly as you pointed out.
3: You know, interesting enough, as you were saying that one thing that I thought of it, that I found very uh, fascinating. I'm just thinking about this from the COVID perspective. Is that in the United States uh, you have outbreaks in something like 45 country, 45 different states that are higher in terms of the the number of people uh, testing positive. Whether that's because you know more people are testing positive on a percentual percentual basis, or whether it's because there's more testing, that's another story that I don't want to get into. But the thing is, is in in Europe, uh, because they are national economies, they actually put up their borders. Uh, there are no borders being put up in the federal United States between the states of Missouri and Arkansas. There are no borders that are being put up between New Jersey and New York. So I think it's kind of interesting that uh, it was actually because they put up uh, their border controls that to a degree, you could claim that the Europeans were able to get the crisis uh, under uh, control much easier. Just something I I thought I'd throw out there as a, uh, you know, there are positives to having a certain degree of sovereignty in that way. Yeah, it's a very
1: interesting counterpoint. You know, we uh, allegedly have quarantines that are mandated here in New York, but the question of how you're going to enforce it when someone drives across the river uh, from New Jersey or Pennsylvania. It it looks very difficult in practice. And it also calls back to something yesterday. We had a little bit of pushback in the comments. Yesterday, I said that infection rates were rising. This is unquestionably true. If you look at the curve, it looks like this. It's a decline and then followed by a rapid rise. The real contention about this right now is uh, something that I said yesterday, which is that death rates Daily death counts are rising. This is unquestionably true. As one of our viewers pointed out, they are nowhere near the April 2020 highs, but the numbers are still rising. The challenges that we face right now in understanding this from a a public policy perspective, from an economic policy perspective, is understanding what that actually means. The rise in cases, is it a question, as you uh, suggested it might be, of uh, an increase in testing and an unmasking effect of more people testing positive? Or is it truly about the spread of the virus? This is the key question. Look, there's no question that we're testing more and more tests mean more positive cases. However, the fact that death rates are rising is a disconcerting proposition. We also know that Death rates, uh, mortality rates are lagged. Obviously, it takes weeks to months for someone who tests positive with the virus or who contracts the virus to actually reach that tragic endpoint of death. One of the questions that I was sort of speculating about in my own mind was Does more testing mean that people are being diagnosed earlier, which could increase the lag time to that unfortunate mortality point? These are all open questions. It's very difficult, as the saying goes, to make predictions, especially about the future. But what we know for a fact right now, Ed, is that the number of people who are diagnosed with this disease is rising dramatically, and the death counts are rising. They are not at highs, but they are rising. And that is, at very least, a concerning factor.
3: Uh, it is. And you know, to piggyback on that, uh, from a European perspective, the question, therefore, is, given how short European... Uh, summers are, what happens next? You know, when we go into the fall, uh, the flu season, and people go indoors, uh, will the coronavirus come back to Europe? So this Hamilton moment or the so-called Hamilton moment in Europe has been very positive. And it's also been positive for Europe vis-a-vis the United States in terms of their ability to crush the curve. But is that something that is going to have um, a lasting effect? And if it doesn't have a lasting effect, what does that mean in terms of policy space? Given that we're already moving towards um, the whole concept that debt matters again in the European Union, that's what the Frugal Four and Finland were saying. They're saying debt matters now. Let's move to the pr- let's move beyond the crisis and move uh, to the future. Will we be able to do that? I think time will tell. But uh, this next phase in the fall will be very important for europe in terms of you know how how do they move forward not just on this this particular treaty but also economically and dealing with uh with coronavirus yeah, and and you've
1: been uh, you've been remarkably consistent about looking at that time frame that you think is really the critical time frame, which is September October, to really get sorted out with the data on the economic front, and of course potentially to get some of this data sorted out also on the COVID front. You've been ahead of the curve uh, in looking at that as well, and you were one of the people uh, who was saying very eloquently uh, when that curve rolled over, "Hey, folks, this is not over." just yet, and of course, unfortunately, that seems very much to be the case. Just to flip back really quickly to something you mentioned when we were talking about euro, let's just do a, just a quick summary of some of the data points here. Uh, the euro jump versus the dollar today, about a penny, uh, now trading at 115 uh, euro USD. Euro stocks 50 up half a percent uh, after rising 4.1% on the month, so positive uh, on the day and more positive uh, over the month long. Time horizon. The DAX up nearly one percent in Frankfurt on the close.
3: Yeah. So um, here's how it ended here today, Ash. I would say that uh, you know it's this is positive for the euro. It's positive for risk assets, particularly shares. The deal that was done, and that should take us uh, into you know continued bullishness. I was looking at something that Charlie McGelade uh, put out earlier today, and he was saying that CTA accounts are, relatively speaking, still underfunded uh, uh, in terms of their equity exposure, and that people are still moving towards a, m- a more bullish uh, stance, and that there's still room to run for for that uh, um, that particular move. So I think that uh, it's all good. For, for the euro. It's very good for equities. And we could see that lasting through that period that I'm talking about, the summer. And then we'll just have to take a look and see what things look like at that point in time. Yes, well said, Ed. Ed, final data point of the day. I mentioned the Bitcoin pizza yesterday.
1: It was, uh, in fact, almost 10 years ago to the day. It's May 22nd, 2010. Uh, it was 10,000 Bitcoin, current market value, $90 million pizza. Nice, very nice. And an interesting conversation, lots of data points. We're still going to have to watch this, a lot more news flow to come. We're going to be focusing on it. Thanks for joining us. Good to talk to you again, as usual, Ash.